today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Uh, talking about uh, Canada finally signing a production deal with the U.S. manufacturer one year after uh, COVID-19 has landed uh, on Canadian soil. Uh, the U.K. way ahead on all of this and uh, their vaccines coming to fruition now. Canada decided uh, not to go this route and instead just uh, line up to buy the vaccines. Feel free to weigh in on that on Facebook and Twitter. We would love to hear from you. Uh, and the odd comp- comparison to this prime minister and past prime ministers yesterday uh prime minister justin trudeau said in his news conference that uh, you can blame all this lack of production on past prime ministers however he has made the same mistake uh, through the first year of this pandemic by not signing a uh, any deal whether it's with a u.s manufacturer or a canadian manufacturer uh, and instead, cons- you know, uh, spending his time concentrating on the Cansino deal, uh, which that facility and it will now be used by uh, the Novavax people. So, uh, again, willing to do a China deal at the beginning of all of this, but not do a Canadian deal. And it is now proving uh, to be, uh, well, it's it's why we are where we are as we watch the United States uh, next week start to shoot the vaccines into their local pharmacies. And we're standing and waiting for uh, even our old folks' homes to to get finished up. All right, let's bring in John Iveson from the National Post. Uh, a couple of reasons. He's got a cool book out called uh, The Riotous Passions of Robbie Burns, but uh, also the column today is Canada Lacking Modern-Day Beaverbrook to Battle Bureaucratic uh, Bureaucratic Action on COVID. And to talk more about all of this, John Iveson is with us now. John, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Uh, gee, John, I had no idea you were Scottish. I'm kidding. Uh, with a mother who was born in Glasgow and grew up in Aberdeen, I can completely relate to what you're talking about. So before we get into this business of politics, give us a quick little uh, a little uh, capsule of, of what your book's about. Uh, well, it's, uh, it was a kind of labor of love that kind of takes my mind off politics now and again. So I had um, I come from a town called Dumfries, which is where Robbie Burns uh, lived and died and is buried. And I was always sort of taken by the fact that everybody knows Burns Night and everybody knows Haggis and Scotch, etc. But nobody really knows Robbie Burns beyond maybe a few lines of old, old Lang Syne, which apparently is one of the three most popular songs in the English language with with Happy Birthday. Um, so I, I thought I would try and bring him to life a little bit. And the, uh, and the way I did that was, or I hope I did it, was that... Uh, a lot of his letters are still in existence. So I took chunks of the letters and used them as his dialogue and uh, covered the time when he went to uh, to Edinburgh in uh, the late 1780s. And uh, Edinburgh at the time was a, a kind of rocking city and he was kind of a, a rock star as he arrived there. And, and um, it was a, it's about his adventures in Edinburgh. So any surprises for you in doing this research? Uh, kind of surprised at how... Uh, uh, you know, he's he's kind of revered now. The cult of Burns is this huge thing, and it's as, as, it's as if the man could do no wrong. Well, when you actually start to look at what what he did, uh, you know, he didn't treat women very well quite often. Mm. Uh, he loved women, but but that I think necessitated in his eyes uh, moving along quite quickly between them and uh, and casting them aside when he was when he'd had his way with them. So. You know, I think uh, he's not quite the, the knight in shining armor that he's made out to be. And, uh, you know, he's a, a flawed human character. And that was what I tried to bring out in the book. 
Uh, the book is called The Riotous Passions of Robbie Burns, and John Iveson is the author. All right, uh, John, let's talk about your uh, your current column in the National Post. Uh, your thoughts of, of where we are and this information uh, that, that really, uh, I guess, has been around for a while but keeps slowly uh, rearing its head, and the fact that we're signing a production deal now a year out. I made the comparison uh, yesterday that, you know, during the press conference, the Prime Minister said, you know, the lack of production is due to, to past premiers uh, allowing production to slip away or not encouraging business to do it. But didn't he spend the first year of this pandemic doing the same thing? Right. I mean, that's, uh, it's really a tale, tale of woe, the the idea that we, we were pinned all our hopes of domestic production on this China deal. And now, you know, that the Chinese pulled the plug on it. I mean, the product was, uh, the product which may not be that great, frankly. Uh, they're injecting Chinese soldiers with it, but nobody else seems to want to get that vaccine. So maybe we, we dodged a bullet, but but we were pin, pinning our hopes on that. The product was uh, was at the airport, and the Chinese authorities decided, for political reasons, that we were not going to they weren't going to follow through with the, the commitment they'd made to Canada. And then we're left, you know, ten months later, signing a deal with a with with Novavax, uh, upgrading, continuing to upgrade a facility which will not be ready until the summer. Then has to be certified. Production probably won't start until December or maybe even into 2022. So, you know, not great, particularly if we see the uh, the deals that we've signed. Now, we did. I think they did a good job in signing seven deals and getting 400 million doses, but uh, that doesn't help us if, for example, um, the European Union starts uh, blocking export of, of uh, product from Belgium and Spain into Canada. Now, they said at the moment they won't, but, um, you know, as I said in the column two days ago, that verbal assurance is not worth the paper it's not written on. And they could quite easily change their mind because the member states are the people who, who control the the, uh, the export of this stuff. And if, if the member states start to see, for example, Pfizer boosting its production and sending a lot of that over to Canada to make up for the shortfall of the product that's not here at the moment, then we could start to see export control there. We could start to see exports curbed from the U.S., who have got similar powers to do so. The AstraZeneca vaccine, which we could have put into this facility in Montreal, we could have signed a deal to produce under license in the same way that the Brazilians, the Mexicans, and the Indians, and the uh, Russians, uh, the Australians, they've all produced producing this vaccine under license. We're not. We're going to be buying it from India. And our relations with India right now are not great. Right. So again, could that vaccine be, be stopped somewhere on its way here, and we're, and we're left looking around going, well, where's our domestic production? Well, we'll get it in December. Why wasn't a production deal signed within this large portfolio that the Prime Minister keeps talking about? Not clear. It's just not clear. I mean, that, nobody seems to know the answer to that question. Why we didn't, for example, sign a deal with AstraZeneca. I mean, part Because of it, in the end, Novavax, that's exactly what we've done. It's a U.S. company. Right. And that, but that product is way behind in terms of approval right. uh, compared to AstraZeneca, for example. Um, you know, because all of these contracts are uh, commercially confidential and they're not public, we don't know the terms of them. Now, what, is it possible AstraZeneca was asking for an exorbitant amount of money because they knew that Canada was was uh, struggling after the, the failure of the CanSino deal? That's perfectly possible, but nobody has mm. explained that. 
Um, why wasn't the Prime Minister interested in the a, a Canadian production deal at the beginning of this when he was working on his deal with, with CanSino and, and China? Uh, obviously, as you mentioned, China, after doing all of the, the research, and, and many have said that they walked away with the, with the research and, and, and stopped the vaccine from coming here to, for approval and such. But, you know, obviously then he was interested in doing a production deal with China. Then obviously that fell through, and then the the whole production deals are out the window. It's just like, just let's start buying as much as we can. Why not at that point start, you know, again, uh, the people from uh, Providence uh, Therapeutics said on this show uh, the, the day that they were they were on uh, all the TV newscasts saying that they approached the government back in March and April, uh, as had other companies for this, and, and were given the cold shoulder. The government wasn't interested in this. Yeah, I mean, uh, Providence even uh, offered to uh, produce in this facility. Yeah. Um, now, they were told that the NRC, the National Research Council, wasn't interested. It's not clear whether that was because Novavax was already on their radar. Quite possible. Uh, we have signed a deal with Medicago, which is a, 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 a Canadian company, but I think even if their vaccine is approved, our initial batches would come from the US. So that doesn't really solve our problem. I mean, one day the whole story will come out, but at the moment it's just... A, a mess, and the government hasn't explained itself particularly well. And the Prime Minister looked particularly sheepish yesterday, standing there saying, uh, "Yeah, it, this is a victory for the government. We've got, we've got, you know, uh, vaccine on the way." Long after I, the Prime Minister, have said everybody in Canada will have been vaccinated. So, you know, it's 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 not a good look for the government. Um, you know, I, I, you mentioned earlier that the headline that was on this piece was about Lord Beaverbrook, and I, and I was relating the story of, of Lord Beaverbrook, who was born Max Aitken in Maple, Ontario, and then brought up in Newcastle, New Brunswick. Uh, he was a cabinet minister in the First World War in Britain, but also in the Second World War, where Winston Churchill gave him and uh, made him Minister of Aircraft Production. And his whole job was to sweep aside bureaucratic obstacles. And... You know, they, it was said of him he found complacency as tempting a target as a balloon to a small boy with a pin. You know, he made it his job to disrupt the lives of bureaucrats. The result was a rapid increase in the number of fighter planes. The 200 extra fighter planes in a month were regarded as the difference between winning the Battle of Britain and losing it. And we seem to have lost the Beaverbrooks, the game changers, from our political and bureaucratic landscape. I mean, it, it's just... Everything is hidebound. And I was relating to the, the example of rapid testing. And we got some new documents this month, mm. this week in the Health Committee. And one of them was a, was a briefing to MPs from a, a Public Health Agency of Canada official who was saying that these rapid testing kits are, we're hoping to have them available as soon as possible. They'll be a game changer. I mean, she said this in, at the end of March last year. It took six months before they were approved, hmm. another month before some of them arrived. Quebec now has a million of these things sitting there in warehouses. It's used 18,000. It's got another million on the way. It doesn't seem minded to use the, the, the extra million it's getting. Rapid testing, it would seem to me, is a, is a game changer, and it means you start testing in a workplace for people who are asymptomatic. Quebec's line is, well, we're gonna be, we've got more accurate tests, these laboratory tests, in clinics. So go to a clinic. But who's going to go to a clinic if they don't have any symptoms? And therefore, we're not, we don't know what the whole problem is, so we can't treat it. So therefore, 
we're no further forward in rapid testing, really, than we were last March. And again, to me, if you had a, somebody knocking heads in there going, what what are you thinking? I mean, this is a potential way to get out of this thing. You know, if we if we can start testing just about everybody, then we know who's got it. And, we start, and the super spreaders, we keep them at home. Is, John, this just another example about how government, whether it's too large or not too large, uh, you know, I don't think it's a size issue, but government and this pandemic has proven this. We've seen private industry uh, pivot on a dime and 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 change things very quickly. But again, whether it's provincially or whether it's federally, uh, making change at those levels of government, it's like it's like turning the Titanic. And there yeah. doesn't seem to be, as you're saying with your Beaverbrook uh, uh, analogy, there just doesn't seem to be that immediacy. Nobody seems to let's get this done. Uh, if the ball comes and someone drops it and it hits the ground, no one's in a in a hurry to pick it up. Will that that change post COVID nineteen is it a different world now where where we expect more from our politicians than just the fashionable issues? Well, I think that the, the part of the problem that you're identifying is our uh, the, the confederation. I mean, just the the fact that the federal government has the money, it then spends the money or gives the money, and then the provinces have their own particular concerns. And quite often, the coordination of all of this just doesn't happen. I mean, rapid testing is just, just one example. We've got another example coming out in the, the paper about um, the essential worker top-up. I mean, provinces mm-hmm. have just not uh, piled in behind the federal government's money. The federal government made a rod for its own back here because it talked about its collaborative approach and Chrystia Freeland made nice with Doug Ford. And the federal government did not bully the provinces into uh, taking the action that it wanted them to take in many cases. And I think, you know, you can you can talk about provincial jurisdictions all you want, but to me, in the middle of a, an emergency, there's no time for uh, constitutional niceties. And we should really have had somebody, you know, you know, preferably the Prime Minister, saying, all this is federal money and we're going to tell you how it's going to be spent. Now, it may not have been popular, but I, I bet he would have got a lot more done than he actually got done. If, per se, uh, we can't predict the, f- the future, nobody w- knows what's going to happen, if these deals will be honoured or they're not honoured or such, uh, obviously um, uh, the Prime Minister is saying that by the, end of the mar- by the end of March, this is all going to be ramping up and, and we'll be vaccinating in, in mass quantities. If all of the vaccinations do arrive by March that are supposed to arrive uh, by the end of March, will all be well? Will this all be forgotten? I think in large measure it will be. Um, I mean, it won't be forgotten because people will remember that they didn't think that the federal government and some of the provincial governments were particularly competent. But, you know, the, the sheer number of vaccines we've ordered would suggest that once more of them get approved, we will be much less vulnerable. I mean, we've got the Johnson & Johnson one uh, is close. I think AstraZeneca will be close in Canada. I mean, when you get those that those kicking in then you're you know by the by the end of june it's possible we could have there's one estimate from the the, the procurement minister put out that if we have all of those vaccines approved by the end of june we could have 23 million canadians vaccinated now that's pretty much everybody who wants one because given the the fact we've got Mm -hmm. uh, x million number of kids and 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 a whole bunch maybe 10 percent of the population who don't want it 
uh, you know, that's pretty much everybody. So they, w- they would come in ahead of schedule and they would look pretty good. Uh, what? That, that's if everything goes well, obviously. So what happens if it doesn't? Uh, what happens even while we wait between now and then? Well, it's it's some difficult days for the for the government. I mean, they they uh, at the moment we've got we're looking at the Americans vaccinating about one and a half million people a day. Um, you know, the UK has done a fantastic job of vaccination. It did a pretty lousy job of containing the virus in the first place, but uh, but they built these factories. Uh, when they didn't have them last March, and they're churning out lots of vaccine. My mother in Scotland got vaccinated today. She's 77. Hmm. And they've already done all the 80-year-olds. So, you know, they've got somewhere around 14% of the population vaccinated. We've got two, two and a half. And if that number doesn't rise, you know, there's, a, there's a league table, which Canada started off in the top 10, comparative league table of uh, number of people vaccinated per 100,000. And we're now barely in the top 30. I think we're 26 today. So, you know, if that if we keep going backwards and everybody else is going forward, then politically we have that the government is in a crisis because I don't think there's many things that could tip the balance against Justin Trudeau. People just seem to be set on keeping Justin Trudeau and and around until uh, until this crisis is done. But if there's one thing that could set people's mind against them, it's it's uh, lack of vaccine. Uh, good enough to, you know, as you even projected, and again, we're just guessing at this point, that, that the mo- majority of the people who want to be vaccinated will be vaccinated by summer. Is that good enough when the U.S. is announcing they're going into Walgreens and CVS and all their pharmacies next week? Yeah, I think that that, that is going to be, I mean, every day that the U.S. vaccinates a million and a half, two million people, and we're doing... You know, I mean, what do we do? Twelve thousand, fifteen thousand, or something like that, on on, on the weekend. Um, every day that that happens is a is a turn of the screw on this government. But you know, they have the they have the uh, the luxury of not facing an election until they really want one. I mean, I just can't see the NDP bringing this government down. So, so they have time on their side as far as uh, waiting until the the other vaccines come online, and. Um, you know, their hope is that all of this will be forgotten. Come, come summer, the weather's better. Everybody's vaccinated. Life returns as much to normal as possible. But I mean, the the other big imponderable, which none of us know about, is the impact of these new variants. Yeah. And it seems to me that the lockdowns that we went through in uh, January and and up till now did bring the number of cases down. But I don't think that they were strict enough to avoid a third wave. And so we're probably going to face more lockdowns come March, April. And by that stage, I think people are going to get really sick of things. And just one other thing that I would mention, the, the Prime Minister has given the impression that, that once people are vaccinated, then everything's going to be okay. And, you know, he said, just hang in a few more months, and implying that once you've been vaccinated, life returns to normal. But, but you know, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think that the vaccination is not a passport for mobility. You know, airlines in particular have been told, you know, they're trying to project their second half of the year and they're being told, I wouldn't bother flying anywhere because the, the, the travel restrictions are unlikely to have been eased by then. I, I, I do think that, uh, that the government has, if not misled people, it's not made clear that once you get the vaccine, it doesn't mean you can run around as if you're immune, even if you are immune. 
the rules are still going to be in place. John Iveson has been with us. His latest in the National Post, Canada lacking modern-day Beaverbrook to battle bureaucratic inaction on COVID. And uh, his new book is The Righteous Passions of Robbie Burns. John, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Same to you. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots uh, of chatter still in regard to uh, travel restrictions as uh, now in uh, Toronto, uh, there is uh, mandatory testing as you land there, uh, courtesy of the provincial government as the federal government ramps up its uh, a new process. It's new regulations for travelers coming in. Of course, as you've heard over the last few days, uh, anyone coming in, the new restrictions are anyone coming in has to be immediately tested and then sent to a government hotel uh, for up to three days or until their uh, test result becomes available. If they get a negative test, they get to go back home and uh, continue their 14-day quarantine there. You also have to go back, I think, for another test at day 10. And then if you test positive, you have to, uh, you have to stay until you test negative. Uh, it's a cost of uh, at least $2,000 by the time they look at security and, and all the measures that have to be in place to, to do all of this. And obviously what they are trying to do here is greatly restrict or, uh, uh, if anything, persuade you not to travel. And those that are uh, already down south um, are, are kind of playing with fire right now as some of these uh, new, some of this new protocol is in place. Other parts of it are not yet, uh, but uh, they say they will be by uh, the end of the week. How has our perception of these new safety measures that have been implemented, how, how, how does that resonate with Canadians? Do we want to be uh, battened down this way. And as it turns out, uh, 86% of Canadians agree with the new safety measures that have been implemented for travelers. Let's bring in Dave Schultz, Executive VP of Leger, and he is with us now. Dave, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. Hope you're well as well. Also. So, Dave, how has the, how have these numbers changed since earlier on in the pandemic? 86%, 87% said the government should ban international travel. Uh, until uh, our counts decrease more. These are pretty high numbers. Were they always this high? In general, people have been very positive about the measures that the government has brought in. Uh, When we've asked them about uh, mandatory masks at the beginning, when we asked about uh, staying at home, uh, people have been not happy, but accepting that this is what needs to be done. And this is no different. So we haven't asked specifically about uh, travel bans because we haven't had them, um, you know, in, in this way for quite a while. But 86%, it's across the board. The only province that is a little bit less agreeable is in Alberta, where it's 76%. But it isn't just that we agree with this ban to the sun locations or the sun destinations. We actually, as Canadians, would like to see that ban um, extended to all international travel. So 87% of Canadians say that they, they think we should ban international travel until there are at least a few days of reduced numbers of COVID-19. Are you surprised with these numbers considering the fatigue that Canadians are experiencing? Well, you look at our mental health, uh, it is the worst. We started tracking mental health of Canadians uh, as it relates to COVID back in March of last year. And we are at the lowest point right now in terms of uh, people who feel they have a, a excellent mental health. Uh, so it's it's getting difficult. Uh, and, and at the same time, 
Uh, we're at a lower point in terms of satisfaction with how well the government is handling it. But overall, people still feel the right thing needs to be done. I, I don't know how long we can hold out because, the, as I said, strain is getting worse and worse on people. But for right now, there's this, uh, we're, we're doing what we need to do perception to get through this. How about our feelings towards our leaders? Uh, we remember during the early part of this pandemic, uh, whether it's provincial, federal, uh, the numbers were quite high. The approval numbers were quite high for leaders as we all work together and different levels of government uh, work together. But obviously, the longer this drags out, the harder it is to maintain those numbers. Oh, quite definitely. So at the beginning of the whole thing, um, we had uh, about a 65, like two-thirds of Canadians were positive about what the federal government was doing. Those numbers increased slightly, but now we're down to 54%. So it's not a huge change, but a bit of a change. We're also seeing uh, a big shift in provincial governments, especially here in Ontario. Uh, we started out at 79% uh, satisfaction. Those numbers actually increased into the 80s, uh, around April, end of April, early May, because it seemed like we were doing what we needed to do. And I think there was this perception that we were going to get out of it soon. Uh, provincially, we're down uh, below 60% now in terms of approval ratings as well. And, and again, we're seeing that across the board. Right now, um, the approval rating for Doug Ford and the Ontario Conservative government is at uh, 53% are satisfied with their response. Are you expecting a change in how we view uh, leadership? We're starting to see more and more people concentrating on the federal government and the lack of vaccine a vaccine arriving uh, in this country has created a lot of anxiety. Uh, we're finally now hearing of a new Canadian production deal, but that's like a year out and, 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 and signed a year after this all started. Are you expecting to see a change in these numbers as we watch the Americans vaccinate in pharmacies and we're still waiting for ours to arrive? Yeah, I do think we'll start to see that, but it's interesting. The most recent news over the last few weeks has been about delays in Canada when it comes to vaccines. There's some now... Um, counter stories coming out reminding people about the size of our country and we can't compare our vaccination rate to Luxembourg's for example which is such a small country but um, in general it's really interesting is that vote intentions because we've been asking people all along about who they would vote for if there was an election held uh, in the last few weeks the Liberal Party and Conservatives there hasn't been a big shift as a matter of fact it's gone from 36% saying they would vote for uh, the Liberal Party to 37%, and the Conservative Party has lost 1%. They're down to 28 So it would still be a minority government if there was an election, election held. Uh, and it really hasn't changed since the beginning of the pandemic. The numbers have gone up and down a little bit, but uh, there hasn't been a huge shift. So I think we may be dissatisfied, but as Canadians, there's a certain, well, they're doing what they can it's going to be fascinating to see uh, if the perception stays the same uh, between now and the end of March when the, all of these vaccines are supposed to arrive and mass vaccinations are, uh, are are supposed to start. It's going to be fascinating to see how attitudes change depending on how that story plays out. Definitely. And we're still looking at 70% of Canadians who want to get vaccinated. So yeah. the demand is certainly there. It's just a matter of... Uh, 
uh, I think you're right, how well it's handled, those numbers could change by the end of March. Dave Schultz has been with us, Executive VP of Leger, and 86% of Canadians agree with the new safety measures that have been implemented for traveling, those travelers coming or returning to Canada. Dave, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Be well. All right. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.